welcome everyone to our Every Other Thursday podcast, where we cover the wide world of food service and hospitality. Our hosts cover both the relevant news of the moment and we invite key industry experts in for conversations that are informative, enlightening, and entertaining. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 40 to 50 minute conversation presented bi-weekly by Tabletop Journal. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Every Other Thursday. And by the way, for those of you who are counting, this is episode number 22 of Every Other Thursday. I'm Dave, and I'm your host here of Every Other Thursday. And once again, I'm here with my colleagues, Greg Kirsch and the Jay Alley. Hey guys, how are you doing? Good. Hey Dave, what's happening? Everything's good today? Excellent. If it got any better, it'd be illegal. We just passed out of August. It's now September. Everybody's still summer going kind of okay. Weather's good. No problems. No no COVID. No COVID. I can't complain. Luckily, I'm living better than most. Yep. Yeah, we're all, we all have a lot to be grateful for. That's for sure. And speaking of being grateful, I'm grateful for today's episode because I'm always pretty pumped when we have great guests. And we've had some great ones in the last couple of weeks. But today, really special. Today's episode is going to be special because we've got a wine expert and no less than Master Sommelier Madeline Trafon joining us. Jay, you've known Madeline for quite a while. How do you think it's going to go today with her on our, on every other Thursday? Oh, I think it's going to be fantastic. I mean, she's uh, one of the one of the most knowledgeable wine people on the planet, and not only that, she delivers all of her knowledge in the kindest ways with her responses to people's questions and all. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better person to be on the program. It's going to be awesome. Well, I'm, I'm pretty excited. And Greg, you've got some great questions, I'm sure, for, for Madeline as we go. Yeah, and actually, I was doing a little bit of background on her, and I saw a cover from Detroit Magazine in 1987. And that's back when I started out in the industry in the, in the mid-'80s, and I remember that cover. You just didn't know who that person was. It's amazing. And I, I remember reading the article and being intrigued at that time. And here we are, you know, fast forwarding uh, 35 years. It's great. Well, I'm sure she'll be uh, pleased that you reminded her of that 35 years ago. <laughs> yeah. so, it's all very exciting. But first of all, we want to get to some of the general business and get that out of the way. As most of you know, every other Thursday is our 30 minutes or so. I'm guessing today it's going to go a little bit longer because of, uh, of who our guest is and her her base of knowledge is so extensive. She, By the way, she, what I really like about Madeline, besides the fact that she's a wine expert, is that she's got a background on both hospitality and food service. And so I think that's going to be great to sort of get go back and forth across that. But anyway, this week's episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. Tabletop Journal is where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places in the world of hospitality. And with our general business out of the way, this week's episode of Every Other Thursday, let's get it started with a very talented Madeline Trafone. And let's everybody give a great Every Other Thursday welcome to Madeline Trafone. Madeline, welcome to Every Other Thursday. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. What a great idea. Yeah, it's great having you with us. And we realize that you've got an incredible background. We've just talked about it on our intro, but you're the second woman ever to pass the master sommelier test. So that that's really way above our pay grade for sure. But your, your wine career has taken you from top restaurants and now into the gourmet market sector, which I think is really fascinating. So you've dealt with both the on-premise and the consumer. So I, I think that, that you have a lot to offer to our listeners. But can you give our listeners a quick snapshot? I know a lot of people are probably have heard the name Plum Market, but maybe you can tell them a little bit more about what Plum Market's all about. Oh, I'd be thrilled. And, um, you know, my career has just been a blessing from day one on premise for most of it, but for almost 10 years now off premise and still my guiding light is the consumer and the guest. So I just want to be upfront about that. That's who I take my lead from. And that's who's always in my subconscious. For almost 10 years now, I've been working for Plum Market, which is uh, an upscale grocer retailer co-founded by brothers Matt and Mark Jonah. You know, they had retail in uh, their family tradition and these markets. I love telling people that I work for an upscale grocery store. And frankly, especially in our climate today, you know, we get a lot of traffic and I get to see people and uh, watch trends very closely in our extraordinary times. And by the way, very important, my good manners, uh, because my mother is nudging me 
in my mind. Uh, I hope everyone is keeping safe and healthy. The gentlemen who are on this with me and also any everyone who's um, who's listening. So I'm working for an upscale grocery store that happens to have a huge <laughs> beer, wine and liquor department. And we are unique in that respect. It's privately owned. We have stores in Michigan and uh, one venue in Chicago and more in the works, uh, notably uh, D.C. That was planned for about a year from now. You know, given what's going on, I don't know the timing on that. We also have food service operations um, for uh, universities and such. And we also have uh, outlets at the Detroit airport and one plant uh, for Dallas. So it's pretty diverse. I'm involved largely with the wine departments in our stores. And what I do on a day-to-day basis is plan and execute events, which went from live to virtual literally overnight. Wow. But you know, it's (laughs) keeping me busy. It's keeping me cheerful. I'm happy to be working. And oddly, there's an intimacy with the virtual tastings that I didn't expect and I deeply appreciate. And we can talk about more about that later if you like. But that's the short version of what I get to do. Our stores are, are really beautiful. If you walk into them, there's very much a feeling, uh, both you know visually, the cleanliness, the beauty of them, uh, and also from a service aspect, recognition from the staff. We're all wearing masks now, right? Both staff yeah. and, uh, and guests. But uh, I think one of the reasons why Plum enjoys great customer loyalty especially in times like this, is a feeling of safe haven. You know, we're committed to quality, but we're very much committed to guest recognition. It's very much the ethos of on-premise, of restaurants, which was one of the reasons I feel comfortable and and felt comfortable going to work for, for the Jonas, because, you know, that's what I spent too many years in my life living. So um, I'm not going to get rid of it now. And uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Madeline, you you mentioned that Plum Market is involved in all kinds of things that I wasn't mm-hmm. aware of, like some of the food service. How yes. many actual retail locations does Plum have? Well, we have four active right now in Michigan, two in what I call the Bloomfields, West Bloomfield right, and right. Bloomfield Hills, You know, some of the highest per capita income pockets in the United States, and two in Ann Arbor which is, uh, you know, could may as well be on a different planet uh, <laughs> because it is very much intelligentsia, university town. We proudly opened within the last little over a year two downtown venues that will reopen but are currently, you know, hibernating. They were smaller. One was connected to the um, Pistons organization and mm-hmm. it included a storefront that was, uh, you know, open to the public. And uh, the other was in a very large office building with a killer location right downtown. And, you know, everybody in that building, as in the surrounding buildings, are now working remotely. So this was just simply a practical decision to make. I'm happy to say it didn't involve a large number of staff. And I believe most of them were were successfully relocated to our other units. So we don't have dates for reopening because everything is the big unknown right now. Yeah, I think, I think everybody's sort of making it up as we go along in terms of the reopening, whether it's a restaurant uh, or a retailer of, of all types. Exactly. So six months ago, I was saying that we had six uh, stores in the metro Detroit mm-hmm. and downtown Detroit area. And sorry, Ann Arbor, we can consider you <laughs> metro Detroit. And then one in Chicago with more to come. And DC is on the on the target list. DC is yeah, DC is committed to and will happen. I just don't know what the timing will be and we're really excited about that. It's located near Embassy Row oh, cool. and it will be a full service store. Yeah, that's great. So that'll be fun and hopefully I'll be doing uh, events uh, either virtual or live uh, with them as well. Real close to you. That's about an hour from me and what, 30 minutes from you, Dave? So we have no reason not to uh, break bread and clink glasses. Yay. You got that right. (laughs) Listen, since we're all together here and and you're the wine expert, uh, we'll talk a little bit about wine trends for a minute. Were there things that you saw happening before COVID that you you know, thought were interesting and maybe some trends that, from the consumer side uh, pre-COVID or uh, or is that so far in the rearview mirror that now you're you're all just focused on the here and now and maybe where we go forward? Were there trends that make it may uh, leap over and come, come out the other side? Certainly. And then, you know, uh, they've continued to blossom. 
especially in our Ann Arbor stores, the natural wine movement, orange wine, you know, our Ann Arbor stores, the, the menu mix, if you look at them between the Ann Arbor stores and the Bloomfields are wildly different. Average price per bottle has always been lower in Ann Arbor and very Eurocentric and very mm. esoteric. But in general, the natural wine movement has become so important that we have recently, and we haven't even rolled it out yet, started uh, a program where we're going to have specific uh, signage with coloring attached to both large and small signs and end caps for wines. And it gets tricky, you know, that could be put under the larger banner of natural, but would include things like biodynamic viticulture or uh, certified organic, you know, mm -hmm. minimal sulfur additions and such. It's very, very important to customers these days. Certainly the whole, you know, seltzer thing is growing. By that, I mean alcoholic seltzers, pre-mixed cocktails, that type of thing has been very important. Rosé sales this year were just bizarre. I mean, you know, we... Rosé sales? Rosé sales, dry rosé. I mean, and, and I say this, you know, this is not a newsflash to a place like Chicago or, you know, a major market. I mean, Detroit's major in my mind, but we're probably thought of as a secondary market. Though I will say, and this is a minor segue, a minor pigwit, uh, pivot, that what's been happening in downtown Detroit in the last five years is staggering. I mean, people living there, restaurant openings and such. So, you know, hold that thought that that culture will resurge sooner rather than later. In any event, uh, as far as rosé sales, to go back to that for a minute, you know, Detroit being, you know, perhaps a market that wasn't always ahead of the curve, lagged a little bit behind in dry rosé recognition. But, you know, we certainly caught up to that in the last, you know, few years. This year, however, we can't keep them on the shelf. And I was just talking to our buyers in Ann Arbor. You know, they're out of some of our major brands already that are, you know, discovery brands coming in from really? small uh, Italian or French importers. I mean, we still have national brands uh, along the line of Whispering, Whispering Angel and such. But Rosé started to surge before COVID and kept strong. Why do you suppose that is? What drives the trend? You know, well, it's, first of all, what's neat about dry rosé is that it's like saying America, you know, it encompasses uh, all different growing regions and styles and most importantly, price points. So you can buy, you know, neat dry rosé that is uh, a wonderful everyday beverage and not just for the summertime, right? Terrific for the family, the family sure. table. And you can buy them in, you know, around 10 bucks and up to, you know, frankly, as high as you want to go. If you start talking about things like Tampier and Bondol and, uh, you know, there are some classified Bordeaux estates that are producing them. So, you know, you have, you know, where do you want to go? It leaves it a nice big window for the consumer to shop in. And, um, you know, you don't have to have other than price point and a little bit of style or growing region. You don't have to have a long discussion. People can, you know, try different ones spontaneously, uh, find a couple that they like. I recently did a private tasting. It was a birthday celebration for um, a group of women, uh, you know, that had gotten tired of waiting for social distancing to go away so they could celebrate a birthday with their friend. And uh, they wanted it to be a blind tasting of dry rosés, which was very interesting because their friend loved dry rosé, but she wanted to try something you know, something different. And it turned out her least favorite wine was the one she buys all the time. And her favorite one was the most obscure and most expensive one from Corsica. Yep. She got a new favorite wine. She got a new favorite wine. So I would say, you know, pre-COVID, really the only trend that immediately comes to mind, and I might circle back to that as we were chatting before, you know, COVID has just shaken up the globe. So our attention has been very much post, you know, March really natural wine, orange wine, uh, biodynamic, organic, you know, that's just been sort of a wave that's surging and has continued to. What about the packaging? You know, I've been reading a lot about wine, you know, wine in a can and single serve and on premise, mm -hmm. that's a bit, it's becoming a really big deal. It is very, you know, you're, you know, no, your ESP is working. Uh -huh. So thank you for bringing that up. I mean, because when I, I, as I mentioned, I spent quite a bit of time uh, talking to our wine team leaders. And I want to qualify something. Plum Market is very interesting in terms of how our wine selections are handled because our 
Mark Jonah will make decisions in terms of our national brand placements for all of the stores, but the wine team leaders at each store are directed to and are responsible for making the rest of the set responsive to the micro market they live in. So that said, it was important for me to talk to all of them because all the stores are different and they're selling a lot more canned wine. You know, and people are very comfortable. I asked why and they said, you know, it's easy, it's casual, single serving. They don't have a problem with fluttering around 10 bucks uh, a can for what's ostensibly a large glass of wine, right? So that's been, you know, box wine to a degree, though we don't deal with that as much at Plum as perhaps uh, other units for something. It's not that dynamic an item for us. It's interesting, the stuff in the can, Madeline, mm-hmm. we went out with Sandy and some friends uh, to an outdoor mm-hmm. place. It's got great food and a decent little wine selection. But, you know, they had wine by the can. So Sandy ordered a, a can of Chardonnay and the other gal, I think she ordered a rosé. Anyway, they finished that, and the server came by and said, Somebody, if anybody else want another drink? So we all had a, you know, I was drinking mm-hmm. a beer, so the girl said, yeah, we'll have more wine. Well, it was kind of hilarious because the girls got a little tipsy. What they didn't realize is the cans were 12 ounces. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. The bigger pork. Well, let me ask you something. I have a hospitality question to ask you, or it's actually a personal choice. I would pour it in a glass just because that's what I do. Right. Did, were you comfy drinking it out of the can, or did you pour it in the glass? Not that it matters. No, they brought them. They brought them plastic glasses. Okay, cool. Yeah, I wouldn't drink it out of the can. I don't. Would... <laughs> well, you're a glass guy, Jack. You're a glass. Yeah, well, that's right. Hello, <laughs> but you know, people are coming back and buying them. I think they they were timid about it at first, especially in the Bloomfield, our stores in uh, Oakland County. But when they discovered that the wine was frankly not drunk, it's good wine. Uh, yep. you know, it's it's responsibly made. It's it's honorable. They would go, well, this is easy, cool, and they would come back for more. Uh, we're tabletop guys, so you would expect us to say this, but wine somehow taste. We always say wine somehow tastes better when it's out of a crystal glass. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm a uh, I'm an on premise girl, and you're a tabletop guy, and I will say that the whole. I can't imagine not drinking it out of a glass. I mean, it's part of the whole gestalt, part of the whole yeah. fun of it. And it's frankly respect for the wine. And, and the punchline, you get more you get more pleasure out of the glass, in my opinion. And frankly, I'm not a massive fan of stemless, though I accept them, because I really don't want to see my little greasy fingerprints all over the glass. Amen. Amen. That's why very very few restaurants use them for uh, for wine. Most of the time, it's for cocktails. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell but I'll tell you this, uh, Madeline. We we during the COVID lockdown times, we have fire pits in my cul-de-sac, and the wine glass of choice is the stemless. Well, it's easy, right? Yep, it is. I don't like them either, but that's that's a personal thing. And and I have trained myself. You don't like them, get over it. Don't look down. You know. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind my fingerprints. Never right. Yeah. Listen, I, I want to touch on some. Your background is so unique. And I just want to go see if you having the on-premise and now with the more the direct to the consumer. And I know you're more focused on events and all that. But are there any parallels you see between the two channels of distribution of wine consumption? Uh, does, does one mirror the other? Does one lead the, the other? Or sometimes I think consumers are going to restaurants, they, they just buy wine out of habits. Whereas in the, if you're buying in a store, maybe you try something new because you have so much to choose from. I think actually the reverse was probably true. And I'm being thoughtful okay. about this as we discuss it. I mean, conventional wisdom for me when I was a wine buyer for restaurants mm-hmm. always was, you know, and this came from wineries and from importers that restaurant placement was wildly important, even if it was, you know, a case a year, because it brought awareness of the brand to the guests. Though, interestingly, not the label, the name, right? So that's a big difference between restaurant and retail. All of a sudden, I got introduced to how important the label is world. But people were inclined to do a lot of their experimenting with wine in restaurants. And what, you know, I think... The reason for that is just very practical, especially with expanded by the glass systems, be it, you know, using wine preservation or what have you, people got a chance to taste something and got to, you know, be it half glasses or ounces or flights or what have you. And if you add the added benefit of having somebody on staff, either officially a sommelier or an educated server, uh, my, some of my favorite people on the planet. I'm a server at heart to my bones. So, you know, I there am you waiting for restaurants to research for them. 
But, you know, when they can have a dialogue and get a definitive recommendation Mm -hmm. from anyone that they would try something new if they were in a comfortable price point, especially if they could have a little splash of it. So, you know, that would impact a winery or an importer or a supplier's retail sales, restaurant placement. That said, when I transitioned to retail, I found that because we do so many events at Plum Market, uh, one of the reasons we got good turnouts once a week is that people could do the same thing that they were doing in restaurants. You know, we would have 10 wines, they could taste them all, and then buy the one that they like the most. Because at the end of the day, it isn't what you say, it's that it's the guest's experience with the wine. You know, big differences in terms of consumer behavior. Well, the biggest one is, and again, it sounds silly, but it's true. The speed of retail was shocking to me. <laughs> you know, I was a restaurant buyer for so long. I was the wine director of a restaurant group for 15 years. And we had, you know, units at all levels, you know, delis to white tablecloth fine dining, sure. which is a phrase that's probably going to go away because it's just, you know, really not hip anymore. But I was used to buying wine at all levels and I would be very thoughtful about it. But the reality is once I made a decision, I could live with it for a while, correct? I mean, the thing I really had to be attuned to and responsive to was how quickly the wines by the glass were moving. Because that could be, you know, there could be some velocity there. But frankly, in retail, how quickly a stack would be placed and then disappeared and changed with another one surprised me, shocked me even. And by extension, you know, especially stores like ours that enjoy return visits from guests that used to be what, three, four times a week, and now maybe it's gone down to one or two, they'd always be coming in looking for something different. And they'd be taking personal recommendations from you. And we would do tastings on Saturdays. But, you know, I just think, again, the speed at which decisions are made at retail from the inside out, not so much the consumer's behavior, but the buyer's and uh, those people working the floor. Um, that surprised me. And I'm, you know, I spent decades being thoughtful in the way I work and I had to, I had to turn it up. Well, you know, this is, all this is fascinating to me because uh, it's, it's really a social experiment, I think, where, you know, whether you're in a, in a restaurant or you're in a grocery store making a selection, whatever. But I'm also curious about the events. And I know you're, mm-hmm. you're deep in the events. Describe if I attend an event, and I understand I, there's a difference now because they're virtual. But if I'm attending an event, a wine event for, that, uh, that you are putting on, what kind of an experience would I get? Thank you for asking that question, because, you know, this is my relationship with the guests that I sort of parlayed from on-premise to off-premise. But that relationship to me is sacred. And I'm really lucky that I work for owners who feel the same way as I do. Pre-COVID, a live event at Plum, let's take our weekly wine bars, you know, first of all, utterly accessible. The ticket price would rarely exceed $20 inclusive of tax. Once in a while, if it was something like, you know, Bordeaux or Cali Cab, you know, we might raise it a little, but we were just looking to cover our costs in terms of labor and a nice little munchy spread that we would put out. We would get, you know, plenty of support from our suppliers in terms of the wines that we poured. But what you would experience most of the time was somewhere between eight to 12 wines under a theme that could be best values on the planet to the new Spain to, you know, Grenache from around the world. Or a winery, if it was a winery that could handle, you know, that kind of broad base that made that much wine, frankly, and all good. You would come in uh, probably around uh, 6.30 and for an hour and a half, you could taste at your own pace. We were pouring for you. There'd be a place for you to sit or you could just mill around. You would have really nice spread of cheese and charcuterie, house-made pizzas, maybe some olives and nuts and some fruit, some other stuff. And there would be at least two to three people on hand to discuss the wines with you because we would always taste them in advance. We'd have a little sheet that if you wanted more information, there it was. There was no pressure to purchase, but, you know, our prices, frankly, bear national examination. And that's something I'm very proud of because it's a pull for uh, the stores, the wine department. Mark is very much aware of national pricing and he is in love with wine himself. So I'm very proud of our pricing structure. It's very much guest-oriented at, you know, at all price levels. And interestingly, we don't often 
offer case discounts, though we will on occasion for events because our prices are every day low and all people have to do is get on their phone and they see it. And, you know, we would have anywhere between 20 to 50 people at our weekly tastings, which were taking place uh, West Bloomfield, downtown Ann Arbor and Chicago. So four going on at the same time. So they're not really, they're not really small events. No, you know, so four were going on every Thursday between 6.30 and 7 o'clock. The only difference was, you know, the themes would be different at every store. I tried at some point in time to make my life easier by making the themes the same, but every store is so different. And, you know, you got to work with the buyers too. And uh, what's already in the set and who they have relationship with and who their customers are. In Chicago, uh, they would start an hour later because they're, you know, our 6.30 is their 5.30 Eastern time, Central time. Mm -hmm. So that's what you would get on a daily basis. Several times a year, we would do something a little bit more extended. It could be we've always done a really good Bordeaux uh, business because we've had a very good relationship in Michigan with our Bordeaux importers. So we would do, you know, the 15s and 16s. I mean, how cool is that? And maybe we Mm -hmm. would charge, you know, 40 to $50 for that kind of ticket price, which considering the spread that you would get up to, you know, 100 wines was (laughs) certainly a good deal. And again, what I'm really proud of our culture, there was never any pressure to buy, but it was sort of irresistible, you know? It's a great event to go to. I mean, yeah. if, if you want to just uh, change it up, if you're uh, if you're empty nesters or whatever, and, or even if you're not, and you just want to get out of the house in normal times, I, that's that's a great way to do it. And now- We're going to have great glassware. Yep. Oh yeah. Well, we're going to talk about the glassware. Don't, don't you worry about the glassware. <laughs> Jay's been on his best behavior. Oh, I know. <laughs> We're going to take a break here, uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about glassware because Jay's about ready to jump through, uh, oh, jump no. through the airwaves, I think, oh, to talk no. about glassware. Nope, and I want to talk about the virtual tastings as well, if I could. Okay. Yes, absolutely. We'll, we'll, come, we'll be right back with more Madeline Trafon, and we'll talk. First of all, Jay, relax. We're going to talk <laughs> about the virtual tastings, and then we're definitely going to talk about glassware. We'll be right back with more Madeline. This episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years now, Tabletop Journal has been covering the food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. If you haven't signed up for Tabletop Journal's bi-monthly newsletter, it's simple and easy, and it's free. Simply go to TabletopJournalNewsletter.com. Now, back to our podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great day today with Madeline Trafon. She is the master sommelier and the wine guru for Plum Market. And I've just learned something that Plum Market, this gourmet upscale market, is a, with a really uh, an affinity to the wine category, has stores not only in and around the Detroit area, but Chicago, but soon to be D.C. So they're moving out. We're learning all about wines and particularly wines that are very approachable. And the other thing I, I've learned also here is that Plum Market also works with food, various food service outlets. So it's, uh, there's a lot going on at Plum Market. And if you haven't been to one, check them out soon. Madeline, before we took the break, we were talking about tastings and, and we, we stopped right before we got to the virtual tasting. Can you tell us a little bit? I know under COVID and everything, you're, you're, you're doing things, we're all doing things differently these days. What is a virtual tasting with you like on the wine side? I had to pivot from actual to virtual quite literally overnight. I was flying back on March 11th from a master sommelier advanced uh, exam in Portland. You know, we were like hailing distance from Seattle where that was getting, um, was at the forefront of COVID at that time. And then I remember landing in Metro Detroit and talking to my boss and he said, we've got to take down all the consumer events. You know, they were having one March 11th without me and the 12th, we went from actual to virtual. So, um, you know, we like everyone else in food service, food and beverage, you make lemonade, you throw spaghetti at the wall. I had never done this. Mark me the direction and said, don't even worry about it. Just get on. You know, our marketing team will help you connect with our guests. That was the direction. Don't worry about sales. Don't worry about turnout. Connect with our guests. And I did within, I think, a couple of weeks. And we started, you know, very simple. My instincts told me, and actually what instinct 
which is what born out of longtime experience and talking to your team, led us to format this in a way that hasn't changed much since we first did it. You know, three wines, though sometimes we go, you know, two to four, depending on uh, who I'm talking about or what I'm talking about. So three wines, uh, people can buy all three or one or none. You know, there was no ticket price for our virtual tastings. It's an open door and it stays that way. You know, remember, there's no labor, there's no food involved. You know, we wanted people to feel welcome to this experience. We kept the time the same, 6.30. We played with the time, actually. We went options a little earlier in case they were working at home and could get off work early. And then we ended up pivoting back to 6.30 to 7.30. We try to keep it to an hour. Sometimes we go over. So people would get on with their one bottle or all three. We would give a discount on um, a three-pack if they bought the whole thing. Most importantly, they could buy the wine online with arrangements for curbside pickup. And now we do actually, you know, drop off and delivery if desired, or they could come into the store and pick them up. We would have the wines at all of the plums in Michigan. So, you know, um, two in the Bloomfields, two in Ann Arbor. Chicago, we started doing virtual tastings exclusively for them. But what's worked better is uh, just tying them into whatever is designed for Michigan if it suits their purposes. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Last night we did one with the Michigan winery left with Charlie, but next week we're doing, or uh, September, yeah, next week we're doing Kermit Lynch Imports and they're participating. And then turnout wise, on the low end, you know, we've been getting maybe a couple dozen on the high end. I mean, we had a cutoff of 100 the other day. And it was for a California winery, Gary Farrell, with an amazing uh, winemaker, Teresa Heredia. And the winery was also promoting it. So, you know, I truly, a big factor in today's uh, culture for me, for our stores, is the unknown. You know, we just all look at each other and go, we have no idea what's going to sell, what the turnout's going to be. But, you know, we people really want to connect. Um, that was very touching to me from the get-go. The regulars at our wine bars got on, and there they were. And oddly, there was no separation because nobody's in the back of the room with somebody else in the front of the room, right? Right. You're all looking at each other at the same time. We had to make decisions on whether we do Zoom chat or webinar style. And sometimes when you're dealing with a winery where there's a lot to cover and multiple uh, speakers, like with uh, Domaine Drew in Oregon and Drew in France, where you have, you know, Laurent Drouin and his sister Veronique and me and a lot to cover. I did it webinar style with people just, you know, typing in questions. But our guests really prefer to be able to see each other and to be able to, you know, to speak if they want to. So we try to accommodate that whenever we can. We started recording them. So now we have a YouTube channel. Nice. So a lot of times people this is interesting. People will register, but the drop-off rate is pretty high on people who actually get on. Either they don't have time or they space it out, right. you know, but they want to listen to it because they bought the wine. And also another thing that was really interesting is post-event sales. People, you know, try one or two of the wines, love them, come in and want to buy more. So what you get in that hour, I always make a point of having some graphics. I think, let me, let me put it to you this way. When I say the customer is my, in my subconscious, and I love the customer before I love wine, and that's the God's honest truth. And I'm not being some sort of kumbaya angel. That's just because of how I grew up in the business, looking at it through their eyes. You have to have a combination of education and entertainment. Mark Jonah always talks about this, and he and I are very much on the same page. And I never dumb it down for consumers, never. I do my homework. I, my job is to distill the information so I give them things that are useful. I have a little PowerPoint with slides because like last night we were showing not just a map of Michigan with Brian Ulbricht talking, but also we had pictures of his growers, you know, yep. that where all the wine came from. So they could actually see, wow, cool, Mission Peninsula and there are the McDonald's, you know, so I, I try to intersperse it with beautiful visuals. We do sometimes um, have uh, willing Europeans <laughs> get on. And I will do it on a Friday at 4 p.m. because that's their 10, 11, or midnight, depending sure. on where they're, they're located. But people will get off early on a Friday. So they get an hour of me 
chatting with one or two folk uh, around a subject. It may be me and a winemaker. It could be me and two of our wine team leaders because we want to talk about, you know, best values on the planet. And then, you know, see you next week. And this is what we're doing next week. And then I send a little follow-up email. And that's the story. It's simple. It's accessible. Again, we don't phone it in. It's, I feel a deep responsibility both to the wine and the guest. You know, and that's never changed in, in my life. It's nice to have a credential, but frankly, you have to live up to that credential, especially if you're a role model for other people. Well, I think it's, it's it, the, the idea of a virtual tasting, I think is really interesting because you're right. Uh, we've said it here on, on every other Thursday that people are really hungry for that human connection. Yes. So, so it sounds like you have regulars that come back on, on, uh, on your virtual tastings. We do, but we also have new people all the time. And to your very acute point, I mean, people really miss affection. We certainly all are missing physical affection from anyone other than the people that we're living with, right? We don't hug anybody. Sure. We don't shake hands. So, you know, the virtual tastings are a way to get that affection and that uh, visceral connection with people and to meet new people. Frankly, there's that also because the, act, the live tastings very much provided that, you know, regulars would come, but then you'd have, you know, a single coming in and they would chat and a couple would ask them to sit down and all of a sudden, there you have it. There you go. Yeah, I also think it's very clever too to uh, have a YouTube channel and then and then to hear you talk about the post-event sales of, of mm -hmm. products that you might feature. I think that's a just from a business standpoint. I think it makes all the sense in the world. And people maybe that visit your markets, they want to say, "Hey, I'm and now I'm comfortable. I know more about that wine. I want to. Mm -hmm. con I've connected with that wine through the virtual tasting. I've met the winemaker." I've I met seen the winemaker. The there you go. I mean, actually, I'm just getting chills thinking about it. We would like. A large part of my job was like connecting with suppliers at all levels, finding out who was coming to town, when, you know, Anthony Lynch was coming to town, when the winemaker from, you know, Aldo Vaca from Purgatory was coming to town. And did they already book him or could I have him for an evening? Now, it's much easier to, frankly, get somebody um, who was either not scheduled to come to Detroit or was already booked someplace else. Well, I think I, I think that idea of having the subject matter expert is 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 great. Mm -hmm. Our own subject ma subject matter expert Jay, he's not as sexy as the <laughs> winemakers and all that. But I can tell you, nobody connects like Jay Alley does. And I, if you've ever uh, ever seen him in action uh, at a trade show, whatever, he he does a phenomenal job. And I know he's chomping at the bit right now to talk about <laughs> some glassware. So we're going to have to squeeze Jay in here because he's going to come through the screen. <laughs> Madeline, try not to believe much of what Dave says. <laughs> oh, I can tell you all are good friends. And I will say officially, Jay has a bigger heart than any winemaker that I've ever met. So oh. um, I'm proud to be your friend, Jay. See, now, now he's blind. Now you got him blushing, I'm sure. I am blushing, too. <laughs> well, Madeline, Madeline and I had a great time when, when we were with the Oneida family. And uh, we did some training with the anchor and the Oneida people. And she talked about wine. And we talked about glass. And I don't know. It just worked. And we... I don't think I ever had more fun. We need to do more of that at some point in time. I do have a glassware question for you, Madeline. Uh, and that is that when you look at the world of glassware, and, it, and Stozel is certainly a, a premium uh, glassware supplier, but Jay would also admit that there's other people who, who make decent glassware, at least anyway. There's <laughs> a lot of great glassware out there. Do you have a particular philosophy that you uh, ascribe to, or do, do you... Do you just, it, does it all matter by the wine? Uh, I'm thinking when you were talking earlier about dry rosé, do you think of it in terms of, okay, what glass would this work best in? Or do you tend to fall in the more all-purpose category? Well, for, first of all, thank you for, for asking the glasswork question. And um, this is, you know, if it's an ad for, uh, for uh, uh, great glassware companies, it's by extension. Because in my entire career, I've always known how important glassware was you know, regardless of what the brand was on the glass. So the two I'm staring at right now happen to be social. Those are what I bought. One is dating back to over 10 years ago when I was the wine director uh, for a restaurant group. And we had a logoed glass for our, um, our flagship restaurant coach insignia. So there's a little uh, Fisher coach on it. And the other one is a glass that I use now at Plum, which is also logoed uh, with Plum. So we know what the pour level is on both uh, in both cases. But I will tell you, incubating many years ago as uh, sommelier at the London Chop House, which was Detroit's version of the 21 Club. 
absolutely destination. You know, I was very lucky to work there um, before and after I got my uh, my MS credential, and it was the truly the place to be in the Midwest. And we had glassware that covered the subject from. We had a separate Rhine glass and a separate Mosel glass. We had a burgundy glass. We had flute glasses. We had tulip glasses. Uh, we did have an all-purpose glass, but. You know, the original owner of the Chop House felt passionately that wine should be shown at its best in the proper glass, uh, born out of the style of the wine, but also the culture where the wine um, was made. Now, since then, I have transitioned to, I transitioned working for a restaurant group that had everything ranging from delis to white tablecloth. And I felt that an all-purpose glass was essential that would be appropriate anywhere and would be appropriate for red wine and white wine, for champagne, for sweet wine. And I put a lot of energy into picking out that glass. I remember when I was at the then Matt Prentice restaurant group, me and a couple of our uh, team members, we actually went to New York to look at the then <laughs> Stotzel display room to, I wanted to physically touch all the glasses that were options. Because to me, it wasn't just the ounces, it wasn't just the look, it was the feel. Because whether you chose five ounces or six ounces, it had to look good to the guest, it had to feel good to a small hand and a large hand. It had to, to quote one of my past bosses, a wonderful chef, Jimmy Schmidt, when he had to write mm -hmm. checks for glasses, he would say, we rent them from the box to the garbage can, you know? So what's the takeaway with that? You know, gee, it would be nice if they didn't chip when you looked at them, you know? And I was always aware of the fact that the right racks were essential to keeping them around for any period of time. They had to look delicate, but not be, you know, uh, so delicate that they were stupid in terms of um, practicality. They had to work on so many levels. And the greatest compliment I could get about a glassware selection and a lot of effort went into it was if we never heard anything about it, right? Nobody complained that it was too big, that it was too small, that the pour level was too low, that it was too well. Nobody complains that the pour level is too high, right? The glass that I'm using now for plum, and I'm playing with both of these glasses, what I love about this glass is it's actually perfectly balanced with or without wine in it. The pour level, um, which I went from five ounces years ago to now six ounces for a full glass, um, it, feel, it looks good. It feels good. It's about maybe two-thirds of the glass or even a little bit lower than that, but it looks substantial. The glasses are remarkably uh, resilient. You know, we don't, the breakage is very low on them um, um, unless somebody, God forbid, drops a rack. <laughs> you know, I probably break more than anybody else does because I'm not as nimble as some of my, um, my younger uh, cohorts are. But uh, I love the fact that the champagne houses, if you now go to, you know, Clico, Krug, what have you, they don't have flutes on display. And I'm always telling uh, well-heeled folks, no, you don't have to go out and like ignore your Baccarat crystal flutes. But, you know, from a wine standpoint, an all-purpose, or if you want to call it just a beautiful, moderately sized wine glass is very appropriate for champagne or sparkling wine. So that's how I feel about glasses. Yeah, I'm interested on a couple of points that you made, Madeline. First of all, is uh, uh, how it feels in your hand, both with wine and without. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. How here you look at the balance of the glass that way, and also something I hadn't considered before. But does the the shape of the glass reflect the origins of the wine, or maybe how it was produced? That well, certainly. You know, I mean, a Burgundy glass, which is intended um, for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, has its origins in that region. You know, Mosel glass, wine glass has an origin in in Germany. So there's the culture that, you know, that where the, it's like food and wine. I mean, you don't, people wonder, gee, Nebbiolo from the Piedmont, if I can segue to wine for a moment, it's so beautiful. It smells great. It looks great. It tastes great. And then Wemo, the tannin is murderous. You know why? And I smile and go, because you're living in a land where, you know, people eat a lot of game and cheese. And when you go to a restaurant, chances are before you even touch a glass of Nebbiolo, you're going to have platters of cured meat in front of you, in which case the wine is going to simply purr. It neutralizes the tannin. 
So the way wine and food grow up together in classic growing regions or certainly historic growing regions in Europe, that's not unlike glassware and wine. It's all interconnected. But I think I'm a big believer in practicality. I'm a big believer in a level playing field and making everything accessible to anyone who wants to join the table. And the reason I'm saying that, it's just a lot easier to have an all-purpose glass that if you have a multiple restaurant group, you know, your casual restaurants can use and find the same glass equally appropriate in a restaurant where the ticket average is significantly higher. Also, in terms of let's take it down to really practical, the money, the beverage right. cost, the percentage, your budgets. I just can't imagine free pouring a glass of wine without some sort of measure Unless, you know, the pour level where the break is in the glass, where it turns in is so obvious that no one can screw it up. Or if you have a demo glass at the wine bar, if it's not being poured at the table where they can pour it to exactly the right level. But if you're pouring, especially at the table, I love logos because the staff, I mean, the reality is that that logo, if you have determined where the pour level is, just, you know, it takes all the guesswork out of it. If you're consistently overpouring, even one server or bartender consistently overpouring an ounce to an ounce and a half with any regularity, it's going to screw your cost of goods. Or, you know, I should say skew your cost of goods. Forgive me for using vulgarity. Jay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no. Jay, I, I was just going to ask Jay. Um, Jay, are you are you at, at Stosel? Are you doing more and more pour lines on on glasses these days, or logos, or, or or you know straightforward pour lines? Yeah, no, we we are, but the whole industry is doing more than ever. And part of it, Madeline, what we're finding is because of the preservation options, where you can keep a very expensive bottle of wine alive for quite a while. It's you know so. You, you can you can buy two ounces, four ounces, six ounces. I mean, we do all kinds of different. Multi now you're seeing multiple levels where more often than not, there's at least two pour levels on it, and wine menus reflect that. You want a four ounce pour, or you want a six or an eight ounce pour, or whatever. And Greg, when you and I buy our wine in the can, we don't really need a pour line, do we? <laughs> pop top, just pop top, pop top, yay. I would like to say real quick that this uh, conversation is very gratifying because we are constantly suggesting to our food service audience that, you know, all the details are important and we don't want to be flippant, especially in these tough times where people are fighting for survival. But, you know, to be very positive about it, all these details here, you spend all this time and energy looking for wine glasses and, and it makes it, it makes a difference. And that's, I guess, the point about, and we talk about branding it's part of the whole operations branding maybe you know you might can an operator might consider it a small part but it it, it affects the bottom line and, and bringing that guest back well said i mean i i will tell you that a million years ago when i started in a french dining room the food and beverage director would look at me and say you know what i see when i see you walking around the dining room i see money i see controlled revenue and that has to do with what pricing absolutely but, you know, the pour levels on wine by the glass is critical. And I'm just stunned quite often these days. I mean, and we will go back to it. Restaurants will resurge. We have to have them. We all want them, you know. But when I see people free pouring wine by the glass into an oversized glass, it makes me cringe as a previous restaurant operator because I'm going, there's no way in hell they're consistent from glass to glass. Right. And half an inch, even a quarter of an inch is an ounce, an ounce and a half difference. You know, yep. it's got to be controlled somehow because that's your profit margin. You know, it's essential. It's like, you know, measuring cocktails. It's very interesting these days when you watch top mixologists, they all measure, nobody's free pouring, you know, because they're using very expensive ingredients, correct? Right. Um, yep. So anyway, I, I don't feel passionate about this, right? <laughs> <laughs> While we were in the break, we were talking about Madeline's passion, and uh, <laughs> we love it, and uh, we love it being around passionate people. So that, that's per your passion is perfect. Madeline, I do, I do want to go back to trends a little bit. Coming out of post-COVID, I don't know that we're there yet. Inter-COVID, yeah. Inter-COVID, yeah. I, I actually think, the um, and we had a conversation about this the other day, the three of us, Greg, Jay, and I, about I think the comeback may have already started and we just have a trouble a little bit seeing it. I think we're going to hit some fits and starts, but, but no matter in terms of wine, what kinds of trends do you see in wine coming out of COVID? 
with things that are maybe around today that you think will stick? You know, I'm going to I'm going to go through a few notes. I promise not to make this an essay, but, you know, um, I want to talk about two different types of retail operations, because that's what I'm experiencing. Because sure. if you remember, I talked about our Ann Arbor stores, um, which are very much university town, uh, mm -hmm. probably lower price, average price per bottle, but a lot of unit sales, more esoteric, more Euro, Euro driven. And then our uh, Bloomfield and West Bloomfield uh, well-heeled operations. And they really have different menu mixes, different sets. But in talking to all the wine team leaders, some things have become very clear that started in March and have continued. First of all, we're selling a lot of wine. We're selling a lot of beer, wine, and liquor. And one of our, one of our uh, store team leaders in Ann Arbor said, you know what surprised me? I realized how much people like to drink good wine. Because, you know, with yep. restaurants not being in play, you know, nearly as much in any market at the moment, people are looking to enjoy their quality cocktail, their beer and their wine at home. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that started happening and it's held strong is people are buying quantity. And I mean, by the case, you know, as opposed to one or two, certainly six packs up to 12 mixed or otherwise. The other thing, you know, comfort labels, especially at the beginning of the COVID crisis, when when, you know, everyone was insecure about how much time they were spending anywhere indoors, they didn't want to have as much interaction. The floor stacks became wildly important. You know, people were, you know, they wanted to go down that aisle, they look at the stacks, they, and they gravitate towards comfort labels, right? Because that's what they needed. They needed comfort, they needed ease. That has continued. So in terms of sales, you know, adjusting the floor stacks became very important because you can sell Esoterica next to, you know, comfort brands uh, side mm -hmm. by side. People originally uh, were not spending much time in the stores, but that has really changed. Um, why? People, are, you know, going to the grocery store is an outing, correct? Mm -hmm. And it's a form, frankly, of getting out of the house, of entertainment even. And they are, especially now that uh, in our stores, masks are mandated politely, gently, lovingly to our guests, but very straightforward fashion with our, <laughs> with our staff. I asked today, everyone, are people talking to you more? And they said, yes, absolutely. They're spending more time in the department. They're taking their time and they're going back to wanting the conversation, wanting to discuss the shelf. What else? You know, people, somebody said this and I thought it's so sensible. People are cooking more at home, right? Or, you know, they're getting takeout and they're drinking at home. So they're paying a lot of attention and asking questions about what goes with what. So the whole, you know, interest in food and wine harmony has, you know, is delightful to our, our wine teams. Average price per bottle uh, scooched down slightly in the well-heeled stores, the Bloomfields, and scooched up in Ann Arbor. Isn't this interesting? Hmm. In Ann Arbor, the wine team leaders were telling me, you know, they would spend a couple more bucks because they weren't going to restaurants. They weren't spending the money there. So they figured, why not try something a little bit pricier or something that normally would be out of their reach? The average price per bottle scooched down slightly um, in the Bloomfields, probably because they were buying significantly more volume. Another thing that was very interesting is that, you know, depending on what store you talk to, champagne and sparkling wine sales are either up or down. All of the stores are at this moment saying that moderately priced uh, sparkling wine sales are strong. That's Cava, Prosecco, up to nice. about, you know, 20-ish. Champagne is an interesting story. In the Bluefields, the, the champagne sales are strong. And Ann Arbor, not so much. Some of that has to do with supply. What's coming through, you know, the supply chains right now. Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. French champagne is held up. Also, the tariffs are starting to hit, right? I was going to say, is there a tariff issue there? There probably There's is. There's a tariff issue there, but, you know, and it's not insignificant. You go from paying $40 to whatever. 25%, I think. Yeah, it's a big difference. But in general, our sales and I'm not saying this for Plum. This is true if you read about grocery in general. We happen to be an upscale grocery store. Our sales are strong. Wine-wise, beer and liquor, they are holiday level strong. It's a surprise to us. However, the mix of it really changes. We don't know from day to day. It's a surprise. Mm. What's going to come in? What's going to sell? 
I had mentioned categories like natural wine and orange wine are gaining steam. Beer sales are up, though there's an aluminum shortage right now. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I know there's, there's, a, there's a can problem, believe it or not. There's a can problem. Greg's drinking too much can uh, wine by the can. <laughs> the, uh, uh, oh, tequila sales are through the roof. They can't get enough, but people are making their own you know, cocktails at home. You know, when you when you talk about that consumer spend, though, we just posted up a story on Tabletop Journal today um, talking about where that consumer is getting that money from. And they're not uh, movie theater business is down like 95 percent. Right. So the entertainment factor, you're not traveling anymore. You're staying at home. So you have literally more money to spend on these kinds of if you still have money and uh, let's be let's be real. There are a lot of people that are that are uh, not in a good shape financially because of COVID and all that. But if you still have money, you're not spending it in the places you used to. So you can spend more on wines or alcohol of whatever type you prefer. And thank you for speaking from a place of empathy, because you know there's a part of my heart when we're discussing this that is wrenched. Yep. Because the reality is we're talking about an upscale grocery store and people who are, you know, the spending habits of people who are probably lucky enough not to have lost their, their income, right? But are working from home, spending a lot more time at home. So this is not the norm. And if you look at national norms, uh, evidently wine sales, alcohol consumption is down nationally. Why? Largely due to restaurants and bars. Yeah, I was going to say, there's no surprise. There's no on-premise business. Absolutely. So what we're, we're not, we're talking about a very specific market segment of people who are lucky enough to be in a position to participate here. Chicago specifically, this was very interesting. The sale of special bottles is on the uptick because again, people need comfort, but in the very sophisticated market like Old Town Chicago, our store there, the, the buyers said they want to feel special. This is a time where they, you know, they need the comfort of something special. So um, they've seen an uptick in premium bottles and also, frankly, not just an entertainment factor, but the haven of being in a store that feels a little bit restaurant-like and they know is clean, that they know that social distancing and um, all the things that matter are in play. I wouldn't mind if we have time to talk about a little bit about what, are, what we're experiencing from food service as well, because these are interesting trends, especially with catering. Sure. So what's happening, you know, we went from like, you know, buffet style uh, self-serve down to all individual packaging in the stores. But we're doing that for parties as well. You know, people are having parties, even weddings, but it's a very different culture. You know, we're going, I just talked to the catering director, Julianne, and we're having, she's having a party next week, up to 100 people outside. And what we offer, and this is something, again, we all are making lemonade. People want buffets, but everything is projected, uh, protected with plexiglass, and then we have the staff to serve. Or we're doing for smaller parties, hors d'oeuvres, which are uh, in customized boxes, you know, yep. so that she'll discuss the box for an hors d'oeuvre, be it cold or uh, warm. We're doing platters and boards, a lot of those, where people, whether they're having something kind of sexy like tuna poke or they simply are having artisan cheese and charcuterie, you know, where they can pick something up like that or have it delivered. And, you know, for especially now, outdoor parties are a big deal. We'll see what's, you know, and when I talk to them about what the future hold, everything is just the unknown. You know, we, when we go back to having to be careful, but spending more time inside, you know, what happens then is TBD. TBD. And uh, net, with colder weather coming, that's yes. going to change things too. So, yes. you know, there's a lot of things up in the air. And um, it's interesting to hear the consumer, first of all, how creative Plum Market is being in terms of responding to it, how agile, making changes in the in the product mix and whatever, but also how co consumers come into your stores and want to really connect that conversation that they may that may linger on probably a little longer than maybe your store manager wants them to talking to <laughs> the people, but but no matter that they, they're coming to the store for lots of reasons. They're coming to the store for lots of reasons. They're coming for human contact. I mean, the reality is again especially in the Bloomfields, this may be their grocery store. 
you know, mm -hmm. so they, mm -hmm. they spend a significant amount in the store. They're coming multiple times a week. We're lucky to enjoy that customer loyalty, but boy, we do not take a second of it for granted. Let me tell you, uh, the people I work for are ferocious in terms of making sure that they're being responsive in real time to, uh, these extraordinary times. I mean, which, you know, the unknown is a big factor in all of this, correct? And it's not, you know, whether you're in Michigan or Ohio or, you know, Illinois, wherever you are, all of us are now listening to parents who are real heroes at this moment, trying to figure out how their kids are going to go back to school. And, you know, whether they're your children or your grandchildren, my heart goes out to uh, people that are making those decisions. But I want to say one thing from the heart, if you don't mind. Sure. My real heart goes out to all the restaurant workers. I spent most of my career on premise. Everyone from dishwashers to line cooks to server assistants to bartenders to servers to restaurant managers. This is a tough, tough time for them, you know, and I know some operators are doing their level best to keep people employed. The, um, the winemaker I talked to uh, yesterday, Brian Ulbrich of Leftwood Charlie, has he says actually a silver lining has come out of these times for him. You know, their tasting room, they've gone to all table service. You reserve in advance. You know, you get flights of two or four or whatever. They're enjoying very good business. He was able to keep most of his people employed. That was very tough. And I want to tell anyone who's listening who is not a restaurant owner, or a hotel operator, but is in a position to hire people to remember that restaurant people are incredibly nimble and flexible and can multitask better than anybody on the planet and can handle stress second only to wait for it air traffic controllers. This has been <laughs> <laughs> this has been proven. So if you're in a position to hire a restaurant worker, sure. please do. Well, this has been terrific. I, I know, uh, Greg, you if, and Jay, you probably have some questions for, for Madeline, but I've really learned a lot here today. And it's reminded me of some things uh, in terms of the consumer lifestyle and it just brought things to a higher level of awareness. So, Madeline, it's really been terrific with the time you've been able to give us today. I really appreciate it. It's a privilege uh, to let me speak from the heart. Thank you to to the three of you, I, I mean it quite sincerely. It's been a joy. Uh, how can listeners find out more about Plum Market? Oh, thank you for that. You know, we're really easy to find. Plummarket.com will take you to our website, which will direct you to whatever store you want to go to. If you're interested in our virtual tastings, it's beautiful. Upper right-hand part of the banner, virtual tastings. Just click on that. Well, you were, you were one step ahead. I was just going to, my next question was going to be, tell me about the virtual tastings. There you go. And it will, you have to pick your state, either Illinois or Michigan, and then you pick a store. Also, our e-commerce is, you know, on a vertical climb. Now, we don't ship to all states because, you know, every state has their own liquor laws, correct? But we do ship at the moment to 19 states. And we're, you know, we're very happy to accommodate people who want to buy their wine that route. So go to the Plum Market website, plummarket.com and troll around. And I hope, you know... I hope you guys jump in on one of our virtual tastings and just say hello. And you can have a, a glass of something else lurking in the background. It doesn't have to be the wine I'm talking about. But I really feel strongly that the fellowship, fellowship is so critical in these times that this is how we're, uh, we're going to get through these times together, correct? We all need to laugh a little bit and connect a little bit more than we are. And wine helps us do that. <laughs> wine is the lubricant that we all need sometimes. Yes, exactly. Great quality wine. Makes you drink it more slowly, by the way, and pay, uh, and pay attention to it. And I think, frankly, that general responsible buzz is better from mm -hmm. a great bottle of wine. So, yeah, absolutely. Cheers to everyone out there. All the best to you. Stay safe. Greg, Madeline, we're going to have you back here if you, at some point in time, can give us give us more time down the road a bit because it's been fantastic. I think you. I was bragging on you, so I think you, <laughs> you drove my point home. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I didn't disappoint you, Jay. Yeah. Just like to real quickly leverage something that you said, a very interesting discussion about all your virtual activities for our uh, food service listeners. You know, this might be, you know, everybody's struggling trying to find new ways of building their brands and attracting customers and guests. And so this might be, you know, virtual activities like this might work for your operations on the food service side. And so just something to think, just something to think about. Yeah. Actually, you know what? It's funny because Matt Jonah, who's Mark's brother, uh, was very interested in the whole virtual aspect of whether we're dealing with, you know, the deli or apothecary or prepared foods that people who are passionately interested in cooking or, you know, 
premium products, they have a way to connect and get more information and have uh, a dialogue with someone who is uh, representing a product we feel strongly about. So I think, you know, um, virtual has also been doing very well for the trade. I mean, there's almost too many virtual tastings from an educational standpoint taking place in the wine community right now. But again, I go back to the consumer. Are we touching the consumer? You know, the person that keeps our businesses alive. What are their needs? Are we meeting them, exceeding them? And, you know, right now it's easy when it's easy, right? But it now is not easy. I want to remind everybody, too, if you're into the virtual tastings and you're in the Chicago area, that with regularity, we do the ones for Chicago as well. So hold, hold that thought. And they both fall um, usually on Thursdays and Fridays. Cool. Very, very, very cool. Madeline, again, once again, thank you very, very much. I want to wish you all the luck in the world with the virtual tastings and the stores themselves, but I especially want to wish you a lot of luck with the new DC store. Whenever oh, that will open, you. that's on there. And Jay and I definitely will be there and we'll uh, we'll get Greg over here and we'll take him along too. So thank you again for joining us. Oh, it was a privilege to bring me into your circle and I love this dialogue. Thank you. Take good care. God bless you. Take care. Everybody stay safe. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years, Tabletop Journal has been covering the global food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday.